Hello and welcome. It is your money. I'm Susie Jones, and I want to remind you right out of the gates, if you have a financial question for today's speakers, you can call this number 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that is 1-888-6ADVICE. You can also email your questions to yourmoneyatwealthenhancement.com. But for the next 50 minutes, well, more than that, you can call or text our studio line at 651-461-9226. Here is Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor Peg Webb and Founder of Wealth Enhancement Group and Financial Advisor Bruce Helmer. Hello to both of you. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Susie. Hello, Peg. Hello, Susie Jones. Hello, listeners. Good to be with you again. Uh, For a lot of people listening, it is the big day. We get to see all those awesome commercials tonight. Uh, Also, there's a football game that goes with those commercials, apparently. I I don't know much about that. Hey, Peg, we have a very – I'm starting sort of flippant and, uh, you know, silly here. But the topic today is actually very, very serious. And I give our marketing team a lot of credit because this is a real thing and it deserves to be talked about. But it is a serious subject, and, and we'll jump into that. But really quickly, I, I felt I would also be remiss if we didn't mention on Friday the S&P 500, one of the in stock indexes that a lot of our listeners and a lot of investors pay close attention to, ended uh, or closed at an all-time high on Friday. And most of the other equity markets are also near or at historical highs. And I mention this because – it, we've talked about it a lot in recent weeks on this show, but the, the 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 public or the prevailing feeling seemed to be one for a long time there being very negative. But now um, there's been some polling and some research that consumer confidence is getting better. Just in this last week, Peg, I saw a lot of stories, uh, pundits and, and and media people and economists that had been predicting a retraction in the market and a recession are now, you know, have done a flip and said, well, we were wrong. Uh, we, the economy looks good. It looks strong. We don't think there's going to be a recession. Stocks are at an all-time high, and things look really good. And I think that's worth mentioning again because I don't ever want to be insensitive to the people listening, and I know they're still out there that are still struggling at the gas pump or at, in the grocery store. But inflation has come down from where it was. Unemployment is low. Consumer spending is high. GDP is strong. There's a lot of things to be optimistic about. And yes, there's still concerns. There's tragedy in the world. There's tragedy in Gaza. There's tragedy in Ukraine. But the fact that the S&P closed at an all-time high on Friday, I think, is worth mentioning. Okay. Well, I think <clears throat> I think we have to say this at this moment in time. It's time in the market not timing the market. I've had to say that a couple times to clients this week because now, you know, even though they have a short time here to maybe put a um, money in an IRA yet for this tax season up and through through um, April 15th, and they're saying, well, I don't want to invest now. It's the market's at an all-time high. But yet, we we um, encourage people to just continue to do what you're doing, investing, maybe dollar cost averaging if you feel um, better, you know, than putting the money in that IRA. But you're right, Bruce. I'm hearing so many uh, positive things, meaning inflation is cooling and earnings are strong. And so I thought this might be a time just to say, hey, listeners, time in the market, not timing. 
because if you're a long-term investor, I wouldn't change your strategy just because uh, things feel, um, they feel expensive right now. But how do we know? I mean, we don't know if it's expensive right now or not. Uh, if I did have that crystal ball, Bruce, then I would tell all my friends and family, oh, and my clients and anyone who would listen that, hey, now it's time. But as we know, we don't have that crystal ball. Bruce? I don't mean to hijack our agenda, but you just said something I'd like you to elaborate on. Because, again, that you're so smart. And that Your answer is so smart. But you mentioned, you know, if it's high right now and you're leery about investing because you think it's high, you can dollar cost average your way in. Really quickly, before we go to our main topic, just tell people what you mean by dollar cost averaging. Yeah. So right now, um, if you wanted to add to your IRA and you're over 50 years old, you get to put in $7,500. And if I said, okay, well, I have to get that in by April 15th. But if you deposit it into a money market currently and you'd say, okay, you know, I'd like to take $1,000 of that each month and invest it instead of putting the investing the whole 7,500. Now you're moving that 7,500 to your IRA right now and you're just putting it in a safe spot. And then you can automatically put 1,000 in over the next six months. That's more of a feel good than it is um, maybe the best thing to do. But I find that clients will then invest versus just sitting on the uh, sidelines and trying to pick that very best day to go in. Bruce? And it's really the same way that we all invest in our 401ks or our retirement plans throughout the year, right? We, th we have a little bit withheld from every paycheck. So if you get paid twice a month, 24 times a year, you make a contribution to your retirement plan at a variety of different market prices. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, but you, you just do it consistently. You can do the same thing, dollar cost average, get in a little bit at a time over a period of time. If it feels safer to you or, or gives you uh, the ability to be more comfortable or sleep better at night. Very good stuff, Peg. And again, I didn't know exactly what, that we were gonna go down that road, but I'm glad we did. So the topic for today, Susie Pegg listeners, we, the marketing team, again, great topic, is being a saver or a spender wrecking your marriage. And what do we mean by that? So for you and your spouse or your partner or significant other, it's very important that you're on the same page, and it's very important that you communicate. Peg, you know, the statistics are out there. We know that roughly, you know, half of all marriages end in divorce, and we also know that one of the reasons cited is disagreement about personal finance. People fight about money. They argue about money. And I, I think, and you know, not to, not to take the punchline of the whole show, I think a lot of it comes back to communicating. You know, we are, we are so um, taught to not talk about money, like talking about money, you know, what you invest in, what you make, what, you know, it's, it's like this taboo thing that we're not supposed to talk to other people about. But in terms of your personal relationship with your partner, it's critical that you communicate and talk to each other. And I think that communication can alleviate a lot of problems. So, the, so again, the show basically is if, if, you're, if one is a spender and one is a saver, how do you how do you put those two things together and make make the relationship work, Peg? Well, and you and I actually deal with this all the time. 
in our client meetings because with the introduction meeting, I'm actually working very hard to find out how they feel about money and who is the spender and who is the saver. Are you both savers? Are you both spenders? But normally uh, the behaviors, um, the way that we kind of figure out how you, which side you're on is do you buy things just for, you know, maybe it's a habit. You don't even need these things. If you purchase items that are um, just two days later, they're, forgotten about and if you if I mention the word budget to people when they're sitting there I can tell instantly like they'll either roll their eyes or they'll look at each other and kind of laugh and smile Um, and you know we also have the clue of how much money do they have like in a savings account or a checking account um, if it's very, very low, we know that either they're great savers by swinging it some, somewhere that they um, would maximize their earnings, or it's just going out for um, possibly material things. And then also, if you're a saver, um, you know, it, the questions come and say, well, you know, what have you bought lately? I mean, have you, you can just tell if people do not spend money. Um, that, you know, that's maybe something they were taught or, you know, when they grew up, <clears throat> grew up, their parents uh, didn't spend a lot of money. The one thing that we encourage all the time is, you know, saving money automatically. And I call it hiding money from yourself. If there's any way that, like you mentioned, Bruce, a 401k at work or a 403b, if you just have your employer that money out before it goes into your paycheck, then the odds of you uh, saving more are so much higher than if you have to do it yourself. And so, you know, being a spender or a saver, I'm not saying one is bad and one is good. It's just we're talking about relationships right now. And um, how do you how do you raise the probability of success between you? And I like what you said, Bruce, number one, communication, but number two, being open to uh, possibly changing. Bruce. And, and Peg, I think a lot of people, well, let me come back to that one. First, I want to comment what you said about budget. And that was, again, really good stuff. And I think most people should have a budget and be on a budget and know how much money they're going to dedicate to their retirement plan, how much money they're going to dedicate to vacations, make sure they make their mortgage payment and their insurance payments and so forth. And they should know how much money they're spending where. And there's, you know, tools that can help. There's, uh, you know, Mint comes to mind and other, other financial planning, you know, software that you can use. But I've said this before publicly, and, and I don't say this to sound ostentatious, but as a financial advisor, you would think I would be a good budgeter, but I hate the details of a budget. But what I do do, and you mentioned hiding money from yourself, I'm fortunate enough that I have income that I delegate a certain amount of money into certain investments. I'm going to max fund my 401k, and I have several other things I do that first and foremost, I put away that money on a systematic basis. And then I I live on whatever's left. So I don't pay that much attention to how much money I spend or where I spend it because I know I'm fulfilling my saving and investing obligation first. Now, I recognize that not everybody's able to do that. I'm truly blessed that I am. 
but it works for me because, and, and, and here's where I want to segue to, some people don't maybe know if they're a saver or a spender, or maybe it's possible to be a little bit of both. But, uh, you know, for example, I know you like to shop. My wife, Pamela, loves to shop. Even if she doesn't buy something, just shopping is enjoy and, and enjoyable for her. It's like uh, some people like to gamble. Some people like to play golf. Some people like to take a walk. She likes to shop. <laughs> I hate to shop. It's not about spending money. I, I shop out of necessity. If I need a new suit or I need something, I get it. I'm done. I get, I get out of the store, and I don't like to be there any longer than I have to. But some people just enjoy that, and some people, yes, it does lead to spending. They like to buy clothes or nice things or whatever they want or new golf clubs. And most of that stuff just doesn't appeal to me. So I know that I'm a saver and investor, and I'm a spender by necessity, not because I'd like to or want to. Okay? But that's what we see so often. Um, you know, uh, relationships doesn't mean that you're identical, which actually I would say um, probably not a good idea. But when we talk about financial missteps when it comes to your money, you know, um, a lot of people like to avoid even talking about it because of their, you know, uh, you already mentioned this, Bruce, about their upbringing. And what I'm finding in the meetings is, you know, it kind of changed a little bit when women went to work and women, um, you know, finally are earning close to what a male would earn. And so, um, you know, I started in this career where a lot of times it was just one income earner and um, the second person was the person that took care of the entire, you know, house and the life and the children. And, you know, so I find today, though, when I meet with couples, uh, you're starting from about the same basis of a start, meaning you still might have a spender and saver, but yet it's almost easier to talk to them about blending their relationship when it comes to money um, and having honest communication about it. And I'm finding too, Bruce, in the meetings that they're very open to talk about money where it used to be uh, they were a little bit hesitant even, and I'm talking about 25 years ago, even hard to get them to pull out the answers to the questions um, that I'm asking. So that kind of leads me to control issues. Um, <laughs> you know, Bruce, I, I love control, right? And, and what my <laughs> husband and I did, what my husband and I did is that we, um, in the early days, um, I, I was a spender. I'm like, oh, I, I'm making money now. I'm going to go spend it. Well, you know, you start, you have children and you have all these expenses and you want to buy a house. We literally put cash in an envelope for the money that we could spend in a month. Because when it's in your checking account or your savings account, and I would say today, easier than ever to pull out money that maybe you shouldn't spend, um, <clears throat> that was a way for us to just control how much we spend, recognize what we spend, and, you know, at what point in the month does the money run out? And then we would had to, had to make some changes based on that. So it's going back to really simple, simple uh, ways of just creating discipline in the household and actually doing it together versus one having control. Bruce? You know, 
you mentioned something really important. So a lot of this, again, you mentioned control. A lot of the potential problems, in addition to lack of communication, end up being just other personality things. Somebody is, is a control person, the other one is not. And, and, and you know, again, it, it, to me, it comes back to also, we talk about all the time, uh, and we can't talk about it too often, we talk about it on this show, we certainly talk about it with clients, we talk about core values. What's important to you? What are your goals? What are your aspirations? When do you want to retire? What does your life look at look like when you retire? Um, what are, what's on your bucket list? I don't like that term, but people know what I mean. I like live it list, but what's on your live it list or bucket list? And I think, Peg, when we do that, it helps people focus on what they both actually want and they might recognize, okay, if you are a spender, you might recognize, hey, all this spending is delaying some of these other things that are actually more important to me than that thing I just bought that I might or might not even use or wear. And I think once we, we help people focus on goals and core values and what's really important to them, it helps the communication, it helps them be in sync together, and it helps them make financial decisions to to to, to be able to achieve what's truly important to them, which maybe we lose sight of in the day-to-day living. Peg? I often say, <clears throat> Bruce, that I wish I had a psychology degree in addition to, you know, a financial degree because we deal with this all the time. And we're asking questions for people to open up and talk to us about that. And then today you mentioned the 50% divorce we work with tons of blended families. So now you've actually added a little bit more complexity, you know, to having these conversations, combining finances. And I, more times than not, I see that things, um, depending on the age uh, of the new um, relationship, I see that they keep their own and um, I have to do two financial inventories at sometimes they come to the meetings together but they truly, you know, have their own financial inventory and then they share expenses. And so it gets to be more complex than just, you know, um, uh, people just having one way of doing things. We had to add more ways of doing things within Wealth Enhancement Group when it comes to uh, clients' finances. Bruce? Peg, as is often the case, you know, we, we, we hit a thread or we go down a road and I get excited and I jump on that and I sort of don't pay any attention to the outline that we have. Um, we've got about two minutes before we need a break. Susie says we're already getting questions. But what else do you want to make sure that we hit here in the first half of the show in these last two minutes? Anything key on the outline that maybe we didn't mention or that you want to elaborate on a little bit? And again, we're talking about saving and spending. And is it uh, being damaging to your marriage or your relationship? How do we make this work? How do we understand? Uh, any, any other key points you want to make before we go to break? Yeah, I would just say the key is don't let your relationship end because of your finances. You know, and if you do some of the things we talked about, you know, create a budget. I love how you talked about the values because that and their goals. That, that actually opens up so much of the conversation that you need to have. You know, plan for the unexpected. You can't have all of a sudden an emergency and have no plan. So you need to be ahead. And then hopefully 
before you got together uh, permanently, you discussed the future and, you know, what your goals and values are, because that brings out um, everything's tied to money. And when your money's involved and now there's a relationship, you have to spend even more time on WDIW. What do I want? But then you have to blend those WDIWs together when it comes to money. Bruce? I think that's a great uh, close to the first half of the show. Um, Susie, I think uh, the whole second half, probably, we can let listeners drive the show. Or, Peg, if you think of anything else you want to make sure that you mention while we're still on the air, we'll come back and start with that. But otherwise, uh, uh, I, I think we covered it pretty well, and we can let listeners drive it. Susie? All right, very good. And the number he just mentioned, 651-461-9226. That is our talk and text line, which means if you call 651-461-9226, you can actually ask Bruce and Peg your question directly on the air. But again, we do take a number of text questions. So if you want to text it, it's the same number, 651 651- Four six one nine two two six six five one four six one nine two two six. And we are back for the second half of Your Money, reminding you again, if you are listening, to jot this number down because it is available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it is one eight 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 six advice You can also email questions to yourmoney at wealthenhancement.com. But right now, you can pick up your phone and you can call us at 651 651- Four six one nine two two six. That is our talk and text line. You can use that line as well to text us at six five one four six one nine two two six. Now here once again, senior vice president and financial advisor Peg Webb, and founder of Wealth Enhancement and financial advisor Bruce Helmer. Welcome back to both of you. Thank you, Susie Jones. Thank you, listeners, uh, for staying with us. If you joined us late, Peg and I today have been talking about. Is being a saver or a spender wrecking your marriage or your relationship? And some of the things, uh, do a quick recap, what we talked about in the first half of the show. We talked about the fact that some people um, are savers, some are spenders. Sometimes your partner or significant other is the same as you. Maybe you're both savers, maybe you're both spenders. But if one is a saver and one is a spender, it can cause duress to the relationship. Some of the missteps that people often make, poor communication, maybe keeping secrets from one another. We didn't really dive into that, but there's statistical data that people have admitted they sometimes hide money from their partner or their significant other and don't tell them about it. I I think that's a bad practice to get into. Uh, We talked about control issues. We talked about budgeting. And we talked about core values and and motivation and, and being being united and and trying to decide or determine what's really important to you and what are you trying to achieve in this life and and making decisions that you know that lead to to sex to success on whatever whatever your goals and objectives are and we're all different um and and sometimes maybe our goals are not the same either how do we communicate and how, how do we find compromise peg made the comment in the first half of the show that sometimes she wishes we had a psychological degree, I, I think sometimes we do act as in our role as financial advisors, as therapist or counselor to couples. And, uh, you know, and Peg and I have 
been doing this a really long time, and there's probably nothing that we haven't seen before. Peg talked about hiding money from yourself, about uh, uh, putting money away first. Uh, in, in addition to budgeting, make the commitment to saving and investing for your future. And again, I think our bottom line here is you can coexist and still have a great relationship if one is a saver and one is a spender, as long as you communicate, as long as you agree on the big stuff, um, you know, when you want to retire, what your life looks like in the future, you can get over these control things. You can figure out a budget. You, you know, again, you can, you just, we don't want arguments over money or arguments over finance to be the torpedo that ends a relationship. Money should not uh, cause you know, people to break up. And uh, we think it's, even though it, it, it happens, the statistics tell us it happens, we think it's avoidable if you just work at it a little bit, if you talk. And uh, anything you want to add? Otherwise, I think we're ready to let listeners take us home. The only thing I would say, Bruce, is I'm witnessing the younger people, let's say, you know, um, 45 and younger. They they have caught on to the communication uh, that is necessary when it comes to money. And so when I'm meeting with these younger people, I'm like, great, you know, at least you guys are okay just having this conversation. Where I think our generation was a little bit more closed about um you know, money. And once again, I think it's because of how we grew up. And I think we're um, encouraging our children to be very open and have an understanding. Bruce. That's that's a good way to close it. Susie, let's uh, let's let the questions drive the rest of the show. All right. 651-461-9226. This texter writes, I have $180,000 invested in the S&P 500 in a brokerage account. My advisor wants us to set up tax loss harvesting, which is now an automated service that they provide. Is that a good idea or bad idea? Thanks. Love the, uh, love the show. Question. <laughs> love the oh, show. Oh, thank that, 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 that's awesome to hear that. Thank you. Uh, and it's a great question. Now, Peg, as is often the case, a, a reasonably straightforward question can take us down a lot of different roads, and there's a lot of, a lot of things that we can unbundle here. So talk a little bit, if you would, please, about tax loss harvesting, which I could also see us, you know, mentioning rebalancing and and these are all kind of subsets of proactive portfolio management. But uh, tax loss harvesting, what is it? Good idea, bad idea, how does it work? Uh, we've talked about it before, but it, it, this is a, uh, it's a great question. It's something we certainly can talk about more often. Yeah, so tax loss harvesting is part of the tax code. And there's rules around what you can and can't do. So let's just say um, you have a loss of $10,000 on an investment and you decide to sell that investment and now you have a $10,000 loss. Uh, If you have no other activity, additional losses or any capital gains, you're allowed to take $3,000 off your income tax, you know, on the front page of your income tax off um, and not pay uh, and, and take a deduction. Now, if you had more activity where you had 10,000 of losses, but you had 20,000 of gains, you sold some other things that have capital gains, then you can cross 
the entire 10,000 loss on those capital gains. So then you end up with 10,000 capital gains on your taxes. The question that's, um, that uh, we um, have here is they are in the S&P 500, and it sounds like they're working with a financial advisor, and they have a system, and so does Wealth Enhancement Group, has a system to automatically identify if there's some losses. And then what happens is is, is the losses will be taken uh, for your benefit so that if there is some gains, you're able to cross um, at the end of the at the end of the year. Uh, I'm a fan. Um, if you have a sophisticated, you know, trading um, investment team like we do, um, I I I love the idea of them being able to do that for us. Now, sometimes it's a computer, but even at Wealth Enhancement Group, it's a hands-on technique that we use, uh, and. Some clients, you know, don't necessarily want to take losses because that means that they may have to take gains as well. I love the strategy, and I'm hoping that everybody recognizes that that is a good tax strategy and not just do it at the end of the year. But here we are at the beginning of the year, and um, your uh, financial advisors are already mentioning uh, maybe we should turn on this feature because it may benefit you. And it benefits people that are, you know, really benefits people that are in a higher income tax brackets. Bruce? So uh, that was excellent. Um, I'm just going to add a little bit and then, you know, prompt you with another question. The way I explain it to people, Peg, in terms of the strategy, because it seems counterproductive. If, if we're selling something at a loss, um, Sometimes people say, well, wait a minute, why do I want to sell when the market's down? You've taught me, don't sell when the market's down, wait for it to recover. Spend other money first. If the market's down, don't sell your stocks. But the way I explain it is if we, if we proactively in, in the management of a portfolio take advantage of tax loss harvesting, we might sell a client out of position A, and let's give position A a name. Let's say that's large cap, a large-cap domestic portfolio, large-cap stocks in America. We might sell them out of A to lock in the loss so they can use that loss on their taxes or use it to offset gains somewhere else. But we will simultaneously maybe buy position B. Now, what is position B? It's domestic large-cap stocks. Just, we stayed in the asset class so that when the market recovers, they can recover, but we harvested or locked in the loss by selling A and buying B, but they're still exposed to the same percentage of asset classes in the portfolio. We're just trying to be smart from a tax standpoint. And if we can reduce taxes, and we frequently can, that's actually one of the ways, one of the best ways of enhancing your total net after-tax return on investment. So, yes, we do use tax loss harvesting. Yes, it does make sense if it's done correctly. And then, Peg, I wanted to segue also, we, we frequently talk about proactive management and we talk about rebalancing. Sometimes tax loss harvesting and rebalancing work hand in hand with one another. Can you talk a little bit to listeners about that? Yeah, when you and, and since the question um, talked about the S and P 500, I mean that's 500 stocks, and they're not all simultaneously doing well or simultaneously doing poorly. 
So in this case, you probably have some winners and some losers. Um, and when I talk about that, too, within the S&P 500, <clears throat> you've got your growth stocks in there, like the tech stocks, and then you've got, you know, some dividend-paying stocks in there that are more long-term, steady-eddy type of stocks. And in some cases, growth is beating, you know, um, the more conservative stocks with the dividends. And so that would be a reason in itself that you could rebalance, sell off the growth that's doing really, really good right now. And within the S&P, there's going to be some stocks that are not doing as well. <clears throat> and I do believe in this technique, like I mentioned before, because um, if you can lessen your taxes by even $1,000 or something like that, then it behooves you to at least uh, get knowledgeable about tax loss harvesting or um, how that affects, you know, your capital gains overall in one particular year. Bruce? That's excellent. Susie, let's take another one. All right, 651-461-9226. That is the number to call. Someone asked to explain fiduciary. Peg, how would you explain a fiduciary? By the way, wealth yeah. enhancement is a fiduciary. How do you how do you explain it to people when you're talking to clients and prospective clients. Okay. Well, what's interesting about this is we have an upcoming show that the entire show is going to be about um, a fiduciary, what it means. Um, actually, I think it's next week. Uh, so in, in maybe I just summarize, you know, very quickly here. It's the fact that your advisor is doing what's in your best interest always. Bruce? Yeah, the way I explain it is, you know, and because and, if, if I say that, then someone's going to look at me and go, well, why wouldn't the advisor do what's best for me? And I think it's important for people to understand that most of the industry, everybody in the financial services industry has a certain standard that they have to meet or they're going to get, you know, in trouble with regulatory bodies and you know, people that, that watch over all of us. And, but for most people, the standard is called the suitability standard. Advisors can't recommend something that's unsuitable. For example, it would not be suitable for me to recommend an initial public offering of a new stock with new technology to my 92-year-old client. That would, that, would be, that would be considered unsuitable. So most of, the, most of our world has a suitability standard. The fiduciary standard being we don't work for Wall Street. We don't work for a financial um, higher power. We work for you, Mr. Client. We work for you. It is our job to do what is in your best interest, and sometimes that may even mean us going against the, some of the, the companies that we use to invest in, and on your behalf and to fight for you against Wall Street sometimes. We work for you, and, and again, I think it's important in choosing an advisor that they are fiduciary. Wealth enhancement is certainly not the only one, but I always tell people, you know, this became really popular in recent years. Wealth enhancement was a fiduciary before it was popular to be a fiduciary. So we've always been one since our inception, and I, don't, I wouldn't practice any other way, but, but listeners need to know that, yes, everybody has a standard in the financial services industry, but for a lot of people, it's just a suitability standard, which is a little bit different than absolutely positively working on the client's behalf and always 
giving them the best advice that we possibly can. Susie? All right, 651-461-9226. A texter writes, do I need to pay taxes if I cash out my IRA? So, Peg, um, I think there is a lot of confusion yet, even though the, the, the laws have been in place for a long time. I still get questions like this where people are confused about how IRAs are taxed as compared to, say, non-IRA accounts or what we would call a non-qualified or, or a taxable investment where you, where you get a 1099 every year. So talk a little bit about the taxation of IRA withdrawals. Well, first of all, we have to define what type of IRA is it, because we talk about deductible IRAs, and we talk about um, non-deductible IRAs, and then we talk about Roth IRAs. So uh, you almost have to understand, number one, what type of IRA you have and, and the rules of cashing that out. So the first one is when you are eligible to take to to, uh, put a deposit in a deductible IRA, that means that you got some type of tax advantage um, of putting that IRA, that money in the IRA. So that would be treated differently, meaning not only the, the money that you put in, but all the growth on that IRA would be fully taxable if you cash it out. If you put the money in a non-deductible IRA where you didn't get to deduct it, then that would be after-tax money. But the money that grows on that after-tax money would be subject to tax. So it's kind of a combination of the two. Then all of a sudden Roth IRAs come out and you're able to put the money in a Roth IRA and you don't get a deduction for that. But then the earnings are tax-free, provided that you follow all the rules. So it's important that when you ask the question about, you know, I want to cash this IRA in, do I have to pay taxes? It depends which one you're in and actually for how long, because some of these IRAs have a time frame that you have to be in, like the Roth IRA, um, before it would actually ultimately be tax-free. Bruce? Yeah, and I, 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 the way I heard the text question, I, I thought of traditional IRA or traditional 401k, but I'm glad you pointed out the differences between them, Peg. So on a traditional retirement plan or a traditional IRA where you put it in on a pre-tax basis and you get a deduction for that contribution the year that you make the contribution, when you withdraw that money, it's going to be treated as taxable ordinary income, just like a paycheck. And... If you end up dying and never taking those withdrawals, and let's say you leave it to your children, they have to withdraw that money out, and then they have to pay the tax. So on a a traditional 401K, traditional retirement plan, traditional IRA, that's always going to have a tax lien that follows it wherever it goes. Now, that doesn't mean it was a bad idea. You got a deduction for that contribution, so it lowered your taxes the year that you made the contribution. You didn't get any 1099s and pay any taxes on the growth or the gains all those years it was gaining. But Uncle Sam is basically saying, look, we, 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 we'll forgive those taxes, but we won't forget that you still owe us, and we know that money's out there. And, in fact, if you don't start to withdraw under current law by age 73, Uncle Sam's going to insist that you do because they want to get their taxes. So 
using traditional IRAs, using Roth IRAs, and using taxable accounts. So tax, taxable, tax deferred, and tax advantaged. We call it tax diversification, and it's smart to have all three types. Susie, I think we can sneak in one more. Let's do it. Uh, my mom's been in a senior center for a year. We sold our house a year ago. We have been told to use the house money first. She does have a savings account with money in it. Um, can if, can we gift that money to her children, and will the state of Minnesota go back looking for that money if she becomes um, aware of the state? I guess kind of understand what they're trying to do there with the money. I've heard this before. Yep. Yeah, but yeah, this is a complicated one. I, I, I maybe shouldn't have said we'll we'll take one more, Craig, because I don't know if we can do justice to this in the two minutes we have left. But you get the gist of it, right? I think they're trying to protect assets from um, from being used being used and spent down to pay for assisted living or health care. Quick thoughts? Yeah, the rule is um, there's a five year look back. So when you um, fill out a form, you have to disclose all of your assets. And even if you gifted that money away today, they better not spend it. Um, a lot of times they'll, the people will take the gift and then they'll open up a separate bank account and not touch it because they know that um, if mom lives past five years, then they, they have the right to come and, and take that money from even the people that you had gifted the money to. So, Bruce? Yeah, uh, so, and then again, it, it can get a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of potential strategies. There's a lot of things to do uh, that or that can be done. Uh, sometimes this can be an ethical issue in terms of is it right or fair or are you, are you kind of cheating. Um, but we always tell people, Peg, in situations like this, consult what's called an elder care attorney. Um, we Wealth Enhancement has attorneys on our team. But we can't be a practicing lawyer. Again, as a fiduciary and a financial advisor, we can't also prepare legal documents. We can we can give advice, but ultimately, uh, in situations like this, trying to protect assets, who owns the home, who gets what money, how do we keep it from being uh, used for healthcare expenses? It's a specific type of law called an elder care attorney, and we always refer our clients to uh, elder care attorneys that we like and trust and have a good relationship with. Susie, I know we're out of time. Yes, we are. But for anyone who did not get their question answered, there were a couple of ones we did not get to. want to remind you, if you're listening right now, you should write this number down, one eight 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 six advice You'll get somebody online there right at Wealth Enhancement, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, one eight 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 six advice Also, you can email questions to yourmoneyatwealthenhancement.com. Make it a great week.